Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fullest podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick. And today's guest is Zach Bush, MD, who is a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, hospice care, and internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health, soil health, food systems, and a regenerative future. Hi, Dr. Zach. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're such a busy man and I'm constantly inspired by you and your capacity to um, hold space. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. So I was just saying this too. I've listened to so many of your podcasts over the last month and I'm consistently inspired by your wisdom. And I know it comes from so many years of experience and trusting your own intuition. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about you. I had the pleasure of meeting you last summer. And then you were so generous to take my son on as a client of yours. And I know that at this point in your career, you're still a practicing physician, but probably don't see any new patients. So that was a really big deal for us. And as soon as I stepped into your office, like the floodgates, like came out because I just felt so supported. And it was, um, it was really a reminder to me to know that I'm supported and the universe supports us. And so that was a really beautiful experience that I was so happy to have with you and, and to have that with my family. But I know that you have, I actually, I knew you had a bunch of businesses, but I, at some point was like outside the seraphic building, I found myself there and I realized you have 12 businesses. I know you're a dad, you have the M clinic still where you're practicing. And I've um, heard you recently talk about this fund that you've started that I'm really excited to learn more about as well. So I, I know that your life hasn't been linear, but obviously looking back, it just looks like it's just gone in this perfect path. But um, as we all know, like there are just so many steps along the way. And I heard you um, talking about your experience, like post 2008 economic collapse. And, and also just, I heard you talk about like, yeah, your, your experience with acupuncture. And I know that you mentioned to me a little bit um, about your mom. So I'm just curious, like, what, how is it like growing up? What was childhood Zach like? Um, I think in some ways I was, you know, uh, really predictable kid. I I was very uh, much the kind of quiet kid in the classroom. I I always had like one one best friend and kind of squirreled away in my life, uh, away from the main stream of of the attention of the class. Uh, My teachers usually liked me because I was diligent, but out of the way. <laughs> and so it was the kind of thing where I kind of cruised through as a, a B, B plus student, uh, kind of uh, underneath the surface. I remember uh, on graduation day from high school, a kid came up and, and introduced himself. Uh, and, and I said, I know my, my locker is like five lockers down from you. And he's like, I don't think I've ever seen you. And that was like indicative of, I think, of my entire, you know, K through 12 experiences. I, I went through life kind of unseen. And I uh, had my core group of friends, which were a phenomenal group that I grew up with in junior high, high school and, and into long into adulthood, still have many of those same friends. So I, I lived a kind of a small life in those initial years and felt like I was destined for 
um, some sort of, you know, uh, labor and uh, specialty with my hands. I was a, a mechanic and loved rebuilding classic cars. And uh, my first jobs were on, you know, construction sites, doing cleanup of construction, pushing a broom or, or washing out, you know, toxic stuff from houses or whatever. And then moving on into the construction field and landscaping and uh, got into uh, the concept of engineering as a potential direction for myself. And so that was kind of how it, it began and then uh, was highly disrupted by uh, a trip to the Philippines. I decided to take a year off uh, before going to my engineering program at the University of Colorado and uh, ended up with a group of midwives birthing babies over in the Philippines and lived there for six months uh, near the squats and uh, outside of Manila and it was a total reorientation to you know a kid who grew up in pretty humble beginnings a couple hippie parents and grew up outside of boulder colorado and in the uh, housing projects that were outside of boulder there and you know so pretty humble background but i had never seen real poverty you know and and had never been exposed to that and so it was eye-opening on really deep levels you know beyond the medical exposure that happened during that time it was kind of reorientation of what do, what is the privilege of being an american and and how is america exploiting you know people's indigenous peoples all over the world for the wealth that we enjoy and uh just kind of really set my career in a much different direction and so all the companies that you're you you know, getting a glimpse of are all targeting how do we imagine a future where uh, the, there's not exploitation anymore. There's no need for it because we've learned regenerative mechanisms of economy where there's so much energy and so much wealth and value to be uh, shared at the, at the local level that we don't need to build, you know, global supply chains for extracting wealth and resources from all over the world to move into these empires. Uh, and instead, we can start reorienting our own communities towards wealth and resilience through regenerative e economies, agriculture, economics, education. These regenerative systems will allow us to, to kind of break down that that exploitive uh, humanitarian crisis that, that we have been a part of. So that's, in a nutshell, the, the, the arc of, of a, a career and, and the beginnings. So you were planning on being an engineer and then that trip, I think you had mentioned in another podcast, it was with your aunt. Yeah. 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 My aunt had been living in the Manila for 13 years and uh, had really helped, helped uh, form this group, uh, our, our weekly clinic and, and a lot of our daily services wow. um, provided through our, the home uh, that she uh, lived in and all that. And so we, we would have, you know, 20 to 30 Filipino women with their newborn babies every week. And I was put in charge of the newborn screenings and stuff like that. And so having these women hand me these tiny infants, you know, many of them born premature and a lot of them malnourished. So you're holding, you know, four pound babies on a routine basis. And you're a 19 year old kid who's not, no medical background at all. It was, it was just dumbfounding that uh, this, this mysterious thing that we call, you know, the physician, patient relationship was so powerful that it would allow people to share these most exquisite, most vulnerable moments and trust one another. And so after that experience, it was very hard to imagine going back to, you know, putting my energy into uh, sheets of metal or, or robotics yeah. and all of that. Uh, the, the human experience was so raw and so real and 
I wanted to, I couldn't let go of it after that. I, I, I didn't, of course, decide I was going to be a doctor on the spot. I thought maybe I'd be a nurse and then maybe a nurse practitioner. And I, I wasn't a, my, my sister was like the brains of my family uh, as, you know, that was the identity I had at least for it. She always aced everything and her SAT scores blew mine away and all that. So, so I never identified myself as a super smart person or anything. Um, but it, I'm kind of, steady on I, I once i decide i'm going to go on a path i don't mind a bunch of failure on the way i just i assume that's the learning curve i guess yeah. <laughs> and so, that's that's been my pattern is to kind of stick with it and uh, keep after what you where you think you're supposed to be yeah i think that's a really beautiful um piece of advice because i think that's the for the majority of us we're not acing everything my sister is the same she's a genius so i have the same experience but I know you had mentioned to me that your mom had some sort of, um, is it like some sort of condition? I, and I was curious if that also had anything to do with like maybe later on inspiring you to go down the medical route. Yeah, I think, you know, my, you know, my mother had a seizure disorder when I was growing up and she, she was such a great mom, you know, despite, you know, the health challenges that were there. She was so good at creating freedom in our lives. And she had four wonderful kids, and I, I've got just the greatest siblings. And um, she's the most extraordinary mom. But being a kid around, you know, parents that you know have health challenges, it, it creates a sense of well, there's a sense of vulnerability there on one hand, I suppose. But it, I didn't sense that as a child. I really instead sensed um, this this depth of experience. I guess like it was it was not difficult to understand how, as a kid that the best thing to do with somebody who's having a seizure is sit with them peacefully and just uh, hold their hand or uh, put your hand on their back or whatever it is and just wait for the seizure to get over. Like you don't try to intervene as a child. You just be present. And kids are so good at being present. And when yeah. in those few times that she would have a seizure in public, which was rare, um, if I just sat there with her, I could see that in, impact the people around me, the adults that were kind of trying not to freak out around me, found a lot more peace if I would just be peaceful. So the way that you know I dealt with that was just like settle down and be present. And to this day, you know, I, I was in a public place just recently and somebody had a seizure that I, I wasn't related to them at all. And but I just sat down with this guy and just, you know, patted his back while he had his seizure. And I didn't, you know, try to do anything to him or anything else. Like just just be really present and it, it you know takes you back to that moment. Um, of, of realizing it. And I think the, the most influence in hindsight that my, my mom, not only my mom's, but other people around me, you know, health journeys was, is that the, the pharmaceutical industry didn't have solutions. Like they, they had band-aids and then she ended up being healed uh, through an amazing event of just, you know, prayer and spiritual intervention and all of this. And wow. So it's just, it, it planted seeds that, you know, we are being told, a very small part of the reality we're living in and for myself i've you know been through health you know crises i've been through social crises i've been through loss and of you know family and um you know went through a divorce and you know i've been through a lot of unexpected you know losses you know that in the end i find that any of those stressors any of those you know things that we think of as vulnerabilities are actually life's way of making us you know the strong person we need to become and um it's the strength that we find out of those crises that uh would would
would define us. And so in the end, I think that whether we point to a mother's health journey or a child's health journey or uh, my, you know, my grandfather's situation, you know, with his health journey, like any of these experiences in my life, I think that we need to re reorder our mindset on those. And that wasn't a health disorder that my mother had. That was a gift. She was gifted with this thing that changed the way our, our family lived. She, she couldn't drive during that time. So I grew up biking, which was such a gift. And so I was, I learned how to ride a bike at a really young age, at like four years old, I was riding a bike so I could keep up with my mom around town. Cause my little sister needed to be in the, in the, in the bike seat behind my mom uh, on her bike. And so I needed to learn how to get on a bike and ride. And so that was a gift to our whole family. And so I think we probably really need to challenge, you know, our current social definitions of disorders and disease or whatever, and start to realize this is ways in which life reorients us to what's important. And um, if, you know, if you and your son hadn't been on, on the health journey you guys have been in since he was born, you guys wouldn't have reorganized your family and you probably wouldn't have this podcast and you, you, you know, wouldn't be doing your highest purpose. And yeah. so should we even call these disorders or diseases and perhaps nowhere more obvious is COVID, you know, here's, mm -hmm. here's something we've termed a pandemic. Viruses are in fact a completely normal part of, you know, biology. And when we have unhealthy states of human, uh, human lifestyles and inner city environments and poor immune systems, you know, these viruses happen more and more often, but not to attack us, but instead to change the, the direction of our lives. And as a society, we have the opportunity to change the direction away from our, you know, catastrophic treatment of nature that leads to these vulnerabilities of viruses to an opportunity to really re-engage nature. And so my mother's taught us that and she taught us a love for the outdoors. I, I grew up hiking and snowshoeing and skiing with my family. And my mother was always driving us to the next highest peak to, to get to the top of the mountain. And, uh, my mother's one of the strongest, toughest, you know, people I've ever met. And she's so beautiful in her love for nature. She's one of the most you know fantastic gardeners I've ever known. She's her property in Virginia is like a botanic gardens experience wow. just to go over for dinner. You know, it's just like, she has any hardships that come her way. She's been so good at um, turning it around into something really beautiful and um, taking the opportunity uh, when directions need to change to do something even bigger with her life. And uh, she and I graduated together on the same day from the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center. And so she, she, she graduated with her nursing degree and I graduated with my MD in the same ceremony, which was such a victory for both of us. Um, she had raised four kids. She had, uh, you know, been, been, you know, by this time was extremely healthy and, you know, went on to have a great nursing career, uh, doing hospital nursing and then hospice nursing. And then I actually got to be a medical director at the hospice that she had done her hospice nursing at. Like there was just so many cool overlaps between our careers in the years that followed. And um, so I, I give huge credit to, to my mother's uh, resiliency and, and her way of always finding a, a brighter path uh, for herself and her family that always kept us reconnected to nature and, and nowhere more true than our food. She was an incredible cook and uh, made sure that every, everybody entering our home, which was always an open home, we always had guests multiple times a week. And we often had you know, international students or families living with us, uh, despite the, the humble homes we lived in. 
uh, we had always people at the at the dinner table eating my mom's incredible food and and so I learned that food was not just medicine but was a a real epicenter for social and spiritual fellowship to happen as well and so you know these are the journeys that you have with one human being one mother and I'm just inspired by all the moms on this this podcast to think about the ways in which you've reorganized your life and the lifestyle of your family around the health challenges that your kids are seeing or you're seeing in your own life. So many of you are trying to support sick children in the midst of the highest level of chronic disease that your generation has also seen. So you've got autoimmune disorders and chronic fatigue and chronic brain frog and all this, and you're managing the sickest child's population, you know, that we've ever had in human history, despite your own health challenges. And so I, I would just ref, you know, offer the opportunity for all of us to take a deep breath and reframe our perspective for a moment to say, these aren't health crises. These aren't sicknesses and illnesses. Uh, these are the things that shape a healthy future. And the changes that you guys are each making in your households and, and in your own life are going to shape a healthy you know, future for the next generations that come. And, and we have an opportunity to, to have next generations that don't have the burden of disease that we have today by learning from the root causes of what led to the, the burden of disease we see today. Mm -hmm. I really resonate with that. And um, speaking of just like really shifting your perspective, I actually, um, I recently was spending some time at Vila Farm. I think you know about it. It's Ryland from Kiss the Ground, his parents founded it. Yeah, I know that one. Yes. Uh, I, I spend quite a bit of time there with Truth and it's so much fun. And we, we actually ended up going there um, because they officiated Eric and I's wedding. So we're really close friends with them. And they told us that they know a family who had whose daughter who she's five years old and she has the same genetic condition as truth and we figured like it's super rare they probably got it wrong but um the, over the weekend we ended up meeting the woman and her daughter and it was such an incredible experience and we were exchanging our um just our different experiences and and just like talking about how we really are trying not to like place our own anxiety on our children because we want them to live their lives fully and not scare them about their condition, but really like educate them and, and really remember that they can do anything that their minds to. And I was actually talking to Bridget, um, who's, I think, is she the director of health at M clinic? Yes. Yeah. She, I'm so happy you connected us and working with her has been so much fun for our family. And, um, I was just talking to her yesterday and, I was kind of updating her on all of it and sharing about how um, I I realized that like I was watching this documentary with Truth and it was a um, helicopter skiing documentary and it was just like for a few minutes, but he was so excited about it and his just his natural state is to be really excited about extreme things like that and it's so fun, but I find myself getting so nervous because I'm like, oh my gosh, if he you know, if he wants to do this, like, how is he going to do this without expending too much energy? And like, I, I found myself going there in my mind, like while we were watching it and, and I was telling Bridget about this, but I was like, I know that like, 
if that's something he wants to do, I'm going to support him. And I'm always going to like remind him that he can do anything. And, and that's a conversation he'll have with you as his doctor and that sort of thing. And she was saying how like, it's so funny how, um, it's so incredible how safety is just, you know, such a big deal in our society and as it should be. But then she pointed out, like, look at as a, just as a world at what we've done with putting safety, like so ahead of everything else that we're willing to like not live anymore. And that analogy was so similar to like basically what, you know, I could have done if I wasn't really aware of how easily I could influence my child. But it's like with the COVID thing, just how willing to just stay home in the name of safety and, and, um, but really it's like in the name of fear. So I know you speak a lot about that. Yeah, I think that's a, a really, you know, pertinent thing. And it's ironic because of course, you know, basically zero people under the age of 55 are, are dying globally. In the United States, the number is a little bit you know, detectable, but still, you know, 99.99%, you know, nothing. And then you go beyond below the age of 18. And now now you're like, you know, one in a billion, uh, as you know, kids of those ages are going to be affected. And yet we've shut down entire school systems. And, you know, we've made some very irrational decisions as a nation. And a lot of other countries haven't gone to those extremes, you know, and, um, have prioritized, you know, children's education and all of that. And so uh, we, we've done, you know, we have created the biggest fear paradigm in the world, certainly in the last eight months around, you know, this, this situation. But I think it's indicative of the fear paradigm we've built around the entire healthcare system as a whole in this country. We feel very disempowered as uh, humans, let alone consumers, you know, like, uh, imagine this, the, you know, multi-billion dollar medical, you know, establishment slash industry medical complex that's been able to convince humans that they're incapable of a normal lifespan on their own. Like, you know, when, when did we lose track of the fact that people have been living over the age of 100 for a very long time? You know, yeah. and uh, it's just, it's amazing that we have outsourced our expectation of life and, and health on some chemical industry. Uh, it's, it's dumbfounding. It's truly, I don't know how, you know, we, we fully bought into it so thoroughly. Um, but I see cracks in that glass ceiling. And I think, you know, for all of the efforts towards control and mandated vaccines and all this, you know, movement that is happening, I think it's, it's forcing a collapse of the system rather than a control of the system. I think, you know, I'm, I'm really convinced that we are moving towards a, a reawakening from this this deep dream nightmare that we've created, and we're going to wake up to find out. Oh yeah, we're we're human biology. That means we're resilient. We've been here for two hundred thousand years, and we weren't waiting for Western medicine to be created in the last hundred years to suddenly save us and and you know create long life. Like that's that's, that's a ridiculous story that we created. How do we do that? How do we punch pump trillions of dollars? into that, you know, $3.8 trillion a year just in the United States being pumped into disease management now. That, that's such a broken system. That's such a thoroughly, you know, ineffective, you know, return on investment at this point. So when we wake up, the, the alternatives are going to be obvious and sitting right in front of us because we've spent 200,000 years with them. I know. I, I, I saw recently in your post that you had said, like, we spend somewhere, like, I think it's four times more 
on um, chronic disease management than um, than military. Is that right? Yeah, our entire military, homeland security, all that's around seven hundred billion, and so we spend four to five times more on chronic disease management annually than military. And we spend. You know, a lot of people think that oil companies and energy sector is the, the wealthiest people. That's one point two trillion a year. And so we spend three times more on healthcare than we do all of our energy sector as a whole. That includes not just oil, but you know, natural gas, electric, the whole thing. And, and so the, the tycoons that we now have at the pharmaceutical level have never been seen in history. This level of wealth, this level of consolidation of dollars into so few hands has literally never occurred in any industry, in any history of uh, humanity. And so this is why we see their capacity for, for controlling the public narrative to the degree that they have in the last you know, eight months is fully out of the fact that they literally control the media. They own the media. They literally control the hospital systems. They literally own the hospital systems. They literally own the education system. They have since 1910. Uh, something called the Flexner Report got filed in 1910 by the, the Rockefellers, you know, paid pay, uh, Dr. Flexner to write the report to Congress. And at that point, they made illegal you know, natural healing, and uh, they they made illegal homeopathy and acupuncture and natural natural naturopathy and chiropractic, all which were booming. You know, very successful medical paradigms of the time. Wow. And, uh, when Rockefeller and, and the like got involved in the the beginning of the pharmaceutical industry, they just decided they could control a lot more wealth if they could create you know a monopoly over the healthcare system in the form of uh, allopathic medicine or the or the md becoming the the only standard for medical care and so that's when we outload a lot of all of these and obviously we've spent you know another a century trying to undo that harm uh, of just that kind of control over it so you know we're, we're in a very precarious time as a nation because we're being driven into a state of uh, massive expenditure on chronic disease and loss of productivity is in inherent for every dollar we're spending in healthcare, we're losing probably $10 in productivity, you know? And so, uh, we are, the spiral on our entire economy is, is, is going to be, uh, opening up self up wider and wider in these coming years. And right now we're, we're buoying up, a failing U.S. economy by by artificial economies such as uh, that of the uh, you know Wall Street Nasdaq uh, investment thing. So we make all of our money moving money around, lending money to other people, like not actually making anything. And so uh, it's a scary thing when you know your largest sector of the U.S. economy by many fold, you know, three times the size of the energy company is now chemical companies taking care of chronically diseased people. You now have an economic incentive to keep the U.S. economy alive. You have an economic incentive to keep people sick and, in fact, getting sicker because it's the only you know, mega industry that can buoy up a failing economy of this scale. Did you know that 70 to 80% of your immune system resides in your gut lining? Ion Gut Health goes beyond probiotics to strengthen this barrier and balance your microbiome the natural way. This soil-derived supplement is scientifically proven to reinforce your first line of defense, keeping harmful foreign particles out of your bloodstream. Maintain a healthy immune system so that it can protect you when you need it the most. 
don't just supplement. Support your immune system with Ion Gut Health. Learn more at ionbiome.com and receive 15% off using code THEFULLEST at checkout. I am person, so I'm really interested in um, saffron and other like botanicals that I grew up with and that I know um, they're healing benefits just from my culture. But I was reading this um, book all about saffron and it mentioned in there that in the late 70s, the World Health Organization had a health for all campaign. And they um, mentioned in there that basically the World Health Organization had realized that indigenous medicines and traditional medicines were more accessible for everyone in the world. And that was kind of their um, what their intention was to bring health for all. And because pharmaceuticals were seen as, um, you know, still having these major side effects and not everyone wanted to adopt it. They had mentioned that really having the education around indigenous medicines was the best way. And, and I was reading this thinking like how incredible that they had this insight, but like obviously didn't come into fruition. And, and then you had mentioned in your uh, live the other day with RFK that really like in the 70s, the trajectory of our health like really changed. And I think that was really um, had to do with like different chemicals like glyphosate and stuff, I believe, not necessarily big pharma, but but I didn't know that it was as early as 1910. That was something I was going to ask you. I mean, it's so it's been like this for an entire century. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing the culmination of large economic interests increasingly narrowing the funnel of, you know, a, a national healthcare system into fewer and fewer pockets. And, you know, you now see that accelerating as we see more and more hospital systems are now collapsing and turning into larger and larger conglomerates of hospital systems. We see insurance companies gobbling each other up. And so we're down to, you know, maybe half a dozen at the most, you know, you know, hands that control the entire healthcare insurance industry. We're down to, you know, probably a few dozen hospital systems that control the vast majority of American uh, healthcare resources. And so it's, it's just a, a scary, you know, end result of capitalism gone amok. You know, we don't have a true capitalistic system. And I don't know that we actually ever have. Uh, capitalism is supposed to be a free market enterprise environment that that breeds you know healthy uh, competition to keep this kind of thing from happening and and i don't think we have evidence that in this area of agriculture food systems or human health we've ha had a, a free economy in over a century and i would probably argue probably over a millennia you know i think that there's been uh, oligarchs and you know royal families that have tried to control these things you know thousands of years back so uh, the control of these two things, food systems, water, natural resources, soil systems, and, you know, human health uh, are, you know, long-time levers for control. And so the, the power uh, that happens uh, consolidated into an empire uh, is, is frightening, and, it's, uh, and it re reaps a huge humanitarian crisis, and you don't have to stop at the U.S. borders to find, you know, the human, the American culture doing widespread damage. You know, what's happening in South America right now, what's happening in Africa right now, 
in South Asia, in China itself, we've outsourced the most toxic, you know, agricultural practices in the world to create the cheapest possible commodities for our food system, the cheapest sugar, the cheapest meat, the cheapest, you know, uh, sugar beet, the cheapest carrot, like, you know, all of these things are just destroying the ecosystems from which we extract, and we're not growing most of our food anymore. And in the same way, you know, the, you know, the chemical industry on the backside of energy and the rest do most of their harm abroad. And so we've, we've created, we've outsourced the real pain and suffering. And as those systems collapse, we, as along with other empires, go rushing in to buy up their land and resources. China's bought you know, the vast majority of the global resources in le- recent years in the form of water rights and soil and uh, precious minerals. All of that's been bought up by China and Africa and South America. Even in the United States, we've sold a lot of our you know, re- resources to China. And so you know, we just are you know, socially What's excited. What's doing with it, though? Like, why are they... Like just to pollute it even more? Just extract from it, right? And so it's an extraction yeah. mentality. So now that they've extracted all the, the precious resources from China, they have to go broader. And so because we have not figured out how to build economies that are regenerative and we only have extractive economies, the, you know, the big rewards come through extraction, not regeneration. And so we need to reverse that model uh, and we need to quickly reverse that model. We're talking about eight to 10 years. If we don't reverse the model, then we, we kind of look at an inevitable extinction event. And so we've got a very short amount of time to, to radically change the public narrative, the public awareness and an understanding of how as consumers, as American citizens, we are in the driver's seat of the consumption. And therefore, we're also in the driver's seat of radical transformation and metamorphosis. And if we radically change our society, it will allow the rest of the world uh, to either prevent uh, you know, the, the need to follow our destructive path or uh, help them uh, more quickly uh, reverse out of the path that they're already uh, well down. So uh, we, have, we have a responsibility as being the most you know, consumptive and destructive you know, empire in the last 30 years. I think China is now competing with us and, and may completely surpass any damage we've ever done. Uh, but it's our responsibility, I think, to start reversing this pattern. We are still China's primary importer and so, uh, you know, uh, or export source from China. So uh, we, we are still responsible for China's damage and China's, you know, uh, infliction, whatever they're inflicting on the world is really due to our consumptive demand. That it, it goes in line with what I, I just watched The Devil We Know a documentary about the Teflon chemical and how that, I think it's, is it PFOAs that are found in 99% of the world's blood? I mean, people who aren't even consuming it, but it's in the Teflon chemical is found in everything, even our clothing, um, like the Gore-Tex fabric that's used for, you know, things like going out in nature and experiencing the snow and the rain. And, and um, it just like, really made me realize that and obviously that's what this is all about that we just don't have access to the basic necessities of health like the clean air soil water even before getting to food and i'm just curious like how is it that you know we talk about us being consumers and how we can make the change but how is it that i mean obviously first we need to get educated but how can we when it's in every single item. I mean, I love buying natural fabric 
and clothing made from natural fibers. And I even look at my clothes, like I was looking at it the other day thinking like, there's still like so many microplastic and the majority of my clothes that are like 98% wool, but they still have it in there. And obviously, I mean, I'm not saying that advocating for people to get crazy and go throw things out and all that. But I think it just really makes you realize that, you know, we talk about like what's going on in Flint and that's going on across the world. And, and then we talk about like, medical freedom and it's you know such a privilege but like it everyone should have access to having choice and everyone should have access to clean air and soil and water and and that's why i love what you're doing too because i think that actually um you know living in orange county i know eric from allegria farms and i used he used to personally deliver his farm boxes to my house which was so amazing to um to have that experience of seeing his urban farming and what he's doing. And I, I noticed that you're, um, you know about that. And I think you're working with him maybe in some capacity. So I think it starts with that, but um, I'm curious, like how, how can we change that when these industries are just so big and, and um, sourcing these things, it just seems so difficult. Yeah, it's super exciting, really, is that there's actually a single solution to everything, uh, whether we're talking about healthcare, agriculture, education, you know, energy, the solution is, can be captured in a single word in that of decentralization. And so as we decentralize business development or business resources or natural resource management, uh, we become very powerful at, at solving all of the crises at hand. So picture for a moment a neighborhood that has a education collective that is built in the outdoor environment such that kids year-round are either uh, working in outdoor gardens or indoor greenhouses for a significant part of the day. Maybe to begin the morning, they, they spend a few uh, 30 minutes uh, weeding their section or harvesting uh, some veggies and are turning that into uh, the ca cafeteria. And then they go into some coursework and engineering around how to build uh, greenhouse infrastructure for an hour. And in that, they're learning geometry and they're learning, uh, you know, manual skills and they're learning uh, systems thinking. And then, you know, two hours later, they're after, you know, some physical education or, you know, recess uh, outdoors, they're returning into lunch and they've got this regenerative, you know, food on their plate. And uh, it was grown uh, largely from the, the gardens right there in, in their schoolyards. And that was the vision of Alice Waters with the Edible Schoolyard Project. And now uh, we're working to partner with them on the Char Children and Farmers Project. She's developed a year-long uh, uh, menu for California public schools to be regeneratively sourced. And every every meal uh, throughout the month cycle is, is from a different nation uh, and is, is informed by a different culture. And the placemat that it's served on is, is uh, featuring the local architecture, the religion of the country, the socioeconomic factors within that country. And, and they're learning while they're eating, you know, passively taking in uh, what Turkish food feels like or and tastes like and and what ingredients were grown in the garden this morning that went into that food. And so you, you do that in the education system. But the same thing can be done in the engineering environment. Uh, the engineers need to be start learning in the context of uh, the, the mechanisms by which bamboo builds strength through its tubular structure and how 
that can be utilized for multi-story housing rather than steel girders and the like. And we can start to think regeneratively in our building materials and we can stop designing squares and start to, to design in spirals and, and circles and, and spheres, arcs and the like, and branching patterns instead of you know angular 90 degree patterns. And in this, we'll create healthier environments, we'll create more resilient architecture uh, that will sustain natural disasters more more effectively, and will be more resilient to uh, ecologic, you know, integration. And th uh, those buildings can actually produce more food and clean water than they actually consume with those that live in those buildings. And uh, a good example, of this is being built right now in uh, the center of Melbourne. Uh, one of my close colleagues and friends, Joost Bakker, is. Uh, building uh, what is aptly termed the greenhouse, and, and it's a three-story uh, or two-story um, uh, inside, and the third story is the ex exterior. Uh, that is a, a three-story you know, residence. I think it's three bedrooms, uh, and it houses you know a full uh, family of, of four, and it's got um, the uh, capacity to grow more food than that family will consume in a year. It produces more clean water than will be consumed, and it uh, increase it produces more energy than it can consume. So electricity, and so you know, it's a these are proven concepts that can be done at scale, that can be done as affordably as conventional things, which is the change. These things used to cost more than conventional, and so 20 years ago, when you showed a building like this, people would say, "Well, that's unsustainable," and you know, nobody can afford that. Well, it's become affordable because of the innovation, because of the, the progress towards natural materials and all of this. And so there's going to be a future where all of this is possible. And so from engineering to education to healthcare, we can look into nature to find these templates for how we need to re-engineer everything. And when we do those in decentralized economic structures, where businesses no longer scale to be global monopolies, but instead scale to be stakeholders in and uh, idea seeds in companies all over the world. So if you think of a great idea, instead of trying to grow your idea into one company that then exports that all over the world, what if you became a stakeholder in 100 companies that were based in 100 different countries and the board of directors on each of those companies were composed of local talent that was able to then re-engineer your idea or your product in, uh, in the template of the local ecology, the local resources, the local economy, so that your product doesn't come in to disrupt and cause harm, but actually becomes a synergistic and you know well-tuned part of the local economy experience, ecology, and all of that. And so that that's the way we change everything is you know, decentralize everything from education to business to engineering to, to architecture to energy sectors. That decentralization seems to solve everything, and it's really fun to think about that on the health level. Like, how fun is it going to be when uh, your local uh, your, or your neighbor is the acupuncturist, and up the street there's an Ayurvedic nutritionist, and we learn to train our children into self self autonomous community. You know, that might be a 10, 10 block area that has all of the resources it could possibly need. It's got the lawyers, it's got the healthcare providers, it's got the engineers, it's got the, you know, farmers, it's got the the whole system there. And so there's a way for us to educate children into this. And if we showed them all of those options, that they could actually build multi-generational homes and lifestyles where they could grow up with their parents and grandparents, great grandparents again, I think a lot of people would select that, you know, uh, yeah. having to travel great distances to be one of a thousand doctors in some small town that's overpopulated with doctors. And so you have to fly 
a bunch of patients into, you know, the middle of frozen Minnesota to go to the Mayo Clinic, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a stupid model on, yeah. on so many levels. So uh, let's, let's start building, you know, infrastructure in this decentralized fashion and we'll solve for everything. So uh, we'll get to that one way or the other. That's what happens when empires fail is we tend to, to sneak back towards a feudalism kind of thing where, where you get these small pods of autonomy starting to rebuild themselves. So I think one way or another we're going to get there. But if we did it proactively, we could stop a lot of human suffering in the uh, pending collapse of, of the, the Western civilization empires. It's so incredible because you speak with, there's so much hope there. And I, and I believe that if there's anyone that can do it, it's you. Like, I want you to have these conversations with Bill Gates. I want you to have these conversations with countries that are looking to industrialize and, and see the value and growing in this way. But then I also get so caught up in things like knowing that we just, um, we just approved the use of glyphosate for another 13 years and like why that's happening or, or, you know, the vaccine was just approved and it looks like the state of New York is looking to mandate it. So yeah, I think, I think it is true that through this experience, so many people are waking up and so many people are, are seeing that it's not sustainable what we're doing. But I also think that you know, we're still going through it at this moment. And it's a real, just such an interesting time. So I'm curious, for people who are listening, who are really um, big on medical freedom, and I'm curious, what you think, before we get to that point, because that's the world I want to live in. And that's the community I want to live in with my son, where, you know, we trade these beautiful skills, and, and we do that. I'm curious, like, where is that going to be? Is California going to follow with New York? Like, where are these pockets and where are these places in the near future that you think would um, support these alternative lifestyles? Yeah. Uh, you know, the last six months has definitely changed that land landscape. But historically, you know, looking at the last five years, Arizona has been one of the most, you know, forward thinking states in the union as far as protecting alternative health care, for example. And so, really lifting up integrative medicine as, as an important resource within it instead of trying to beat it down. And so they've uh, passed some very, you know, progressive uh, laws there in, in Arizona for health freedom that I think is intriguing. Uh, I'm very excited about what's happening in, in Texas right now as far as just a, a real rise in, in, in protection. I think Florida is going to continue to rise uh, with its, you know, political protection over health freedom in the years to come. Uh, so I, I think those are a few hot spots. Uh, we'll have to see what happens in North Carolina and we'll have to see what happens in West Virginia and some of these other states that are kind of off the beating path right now, I think are going to uh, be really huge targets for young families moving to in the coming years for the opportunities for health freedom. Uh, so that's a, that's a few bright points around the country and there are certainly others. What about Utah? If my Eric wants to move to Utah all the time, I was like, I'll ask Zach. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think Utah's uh, likely to be okay spot for a period of time, at least. Um, you know, I've been very disappointed by Colorado in the last few months. Um, I really saw them as a progressive space, but um, again, uh, this this current fear paradigm is doing things to these local economies that nobody could have ever assumed uh, the control over these governors and. Uh, and, you know, local health officials is uh, dumbfounding. So 
uh, I would say Colorado is not your spot anymore. Um, I think too much big money has rushed there anyways. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I think Utah is an option. Um, I think Nevada might be an option. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, New Mexico is uh, perhaps going to go in the right direction. They're kind of on a, a tipping point right now, not looking real good in the last couple of weeks. But, um, you know, as far as the short term decisions they're making there, but I, I think that the population in, in New Mexico is likely to stand up. Um, I think that the there's two different ways to think about it. You know, what does the population want and what is the government doing? Yeah. Uh, I think that what the population wants in Hawaii is really positive. I think what the government is doing in Hawaii right now is really not negative. So, you know, picking your picking your spot, you have to ask those two questions. Is this is this local government amenable to health freedom? If not, or if not yet, is there a population in, in that state that really wants health freedom to happen that you could team up with and mobilize and be part of a mobilization effort to change that local government? to a more progressive, you know, uh, mindset towards uh, health freedom. It's so interesting to me because when I think about it, I think about the majority of people subscribing to the allopathic um, medicine paradigm. So um, it's so interesting that it's such a big deal to seek alternative treatments like homeopathy and acupuncture and, and to want to go after maybe those practitioners or people um, looking for that because I mean, what is the percentage of people that are even looking for that in the first place? Or do you think they're just like, who's scared of this being um, something that people seek? Yeah, I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to pin down. You know, I think fear is uh, one of those very vague powers <laughs> that gets, uh, it's hard to pin down the source of the fear. It's, it's hard to uh, predict all of the consequences to a fear a fear paradigm of the scale that's being practiced right now. I, uh, humanity has never seen this scale of fear uh, on the, in history, I think, in regards to, to health. And so uh, that the, the only exception to the, that I could think of would be like Europe in the middle of the Black Plague or something like, you know, like, and that was where people were actually dying of a condition at, at extreme rates. You know, we lost 15 yeah. to 20 percent of Western Europe at that time. So we're not losing that kind of people here. We're, we're losing so few people in the United States. We, we lost far fewer people, you know, from, from SARS-CoV-2 than we will from influenza or anything else. The whole COVID-19 is a syndrome. It's not a disease process. It doesn't happen because of the virus. The virus is long gone by the time people pass away with this more complex syndrome. And so the syndrome is not indicative of the virus. It's indicative of, of severe instability in the immunity and immune reactivity of a population. And so we've been sensitized to downstream, you know, consequences that can be fatal in elderly and people with lots of high comorbid chronic disease uh, that can look like it came from a virus, perhaps, if it's the narrative is told correctly. But, uh, you know, in New York City, for example, you know, you've got 5,700 patients admitted to New York hospitals with a diagnosis of, of SARS-CoV-2 and uh, the entire group, you know, at, at published in, in the Journal of American Medical Association, I think, in JAMA. Um, but uh, that publication demonstrated that uh, as a population, they were non-febrile. They had no elevation in the white blood cell counts, no left shift in their white cell counts suggesting a viral infection. So there's nothing suggesting that they actually were sick from a, a virus. 
uh, and yet they had this, you know, insanely high mortality rate in the ICUs of New York hospitals, you know, 88% mortality if, if intubated. And there's no virus on earth that's ever had that. Load. Well, now suddenly we, we changed our, our practice and realized we shouldn't intubate any of these people. And they're not due to a lack of oxygen. They're due to a lack of, of oxygen carrying capacity with down, downstream repercussions of inflammation and, and micro blood clots. And so once we started treating the inflammation and the blood clots, then, then people stopped dying from this condition. So we, we're not treating a virus anymore. We're treating dysfunction of immune system. And once you start to retarget that, your outcomes are better in healthcare systems and, and hospitals. But we should have, you know, in realizing that, retold the story that people aren't dying from, from SARS-CoV-2 virus. People are dying from severe immune you know, instability and vulnerability. And I know that you've mentioned that it it has something to do with like the cyanide and PM 2.5 and the fires from Australia. I'd love for you to um, share a little bit about that because it, it just makes so much sense. But then I also think about, um, uh, yeah, I looked into it. It just makes so much sense to me. And, and then you talked a little bit about that having to do with um, blood clots as well, right? And like people on statins. So I'm just curious. Yeah, there's a, a lengthy discussion on this on, on the Highwire. Um, I think Highwire was the most thorough you know, rundown on this, but it took me an hour and 20 minutes. So I've got just a few minutes left with you here. But yeah. the short, short version of it is that for a long, long time, for decades, we've recognized that viruses that are respiratory born, things like influenza and the like, including coronaviruses, bond to carbon toxins or carbon particulate in the air. And these small carbon particulate are caused by primarily the energy sector, but also transportation industry. So um, we end up with this, you know, exhaust or waste product in the atmosphere uh, that binds to viruses. And we start clumping viruses and they can't interact with lung tissue in the same way that they should. And so you, you end up with a very artificial and uh, and dangerous delivery system for naturally occurring non-toxic viruses. And so the, the higher your PM 2.5 or carbon particulate level is, the more uh, viral delivery you're going to get into the lung. And if you look at the map around the world of all the hot spots of high PM 2.5, you find exactly where we documented, quote unquote, death from you know, COVID-19, when in fact, they were dying from, you know, you know, this pot, this this pollution exposure in the air. And so that's Northern Italy, pockets of Germany, the UK, you know, New York, uh, New Orleans, you know, all these areas have very high PM 2.5. And it's usually a conglomeration of high amounts of oil and refineries and uh, oil industries with the with nearby agricultural scenes. And nowhere is this more true than Hubei province in China, where uh, this thing apparently all started. And so that's where you see the highest use of Roundup and glyphosate and herbicides, pesticides, and antibiotics in pork industry. The highest amount of pork production in the whole world is right there in the Hubei area. And so you've got this massive toxicity of the agricultural industry combined with the highest amounts of PM 2.5 coming down from Beijing. And so you get this perfect transit for global distribution of viruses in very abnormal, non-biologically or non-natural ways. And then the receptors for those viruses that are now being delivered in clumped fashion rather than distributed fashion, uh, it, the receptors are upregulated by a couple of drugs, and, and those drugs are statin drugs and ACE inhibitors. And those two drugs are common to three different conditions, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and end-stage kidney disease. 
And those are the three comorbidities that had the very highest mortality with this pandemic, meaning that if you are on those two drugs, you've upregulated the receptor. And if you happen to be on those two drugs and living in an area of high PM 2.5, then your mortality is going to go really high. Fortunately, globally, the amount of people on statins and, and ACE inhibitors is quite low. Uh, in the United States, we're, we're obviously many time, times more pharmaceuticalized than, than developing nations, and we see this huge vulnerability. And so in the United States, we logged, if our, if our accounting is even correct, and there's a lot of debate around that, obviously, but if our accounting for the number of deaths related to COVID-19 is correct, then we had about 20 to 25% of total global deaths, and we only have 4% of the global population. And so that means we had, you know, six-fold or something the the mortality rates than the rest of the world here in the country where we spend seven times more than any other industrialized nation in healthcare, and yet we have, you know, far worse outcomes. And if you look at you know, the health outcomes of the United States as a whole, you know, as, you know, where do we rank globally for health outcomes, not related to pandemic, but cardiovascular disease, death on day one, any of these metrics, uh, we rank 30, 35th to 39th to 42nd in the world, depending on which, you know, which group you, you count by, but we're dead last in all industrialized nations in our category, you know, so of the 11 wealthiest countries, we're dead last. At 35th or 39th or 42nd in the world, doesn't matter which of those numbers you go by, but at 35th in the world, we rank behind war-torn countries like Eastern Bloc, Europe, and, you know, one of the few com countries that are, is having worse outcomes on day one of life is, is Somalia right now. That's the only place you can find a, a higher day one mortality of infants than, than we currently have. We have the highest mortality rate in any industrialized nation in the country on day one. And so uh, we, we have this horrific track record despite the $3.8 trillion that we're spending. And so our return on investment of that massive, you know, the largest industry in the United States is horrible. You know, we just don't have a return on investment. It seems to be making us sicker, not better. And this phenomenon of these drugs upregulating the receptors for viruses is a great example of these unseen side effects of pharmaceuticalizing the human body. I know. And that's why I... Um when we talk about natural and alternative medicine and, and some people, um, I think it, it can be a trigger to some people because it, I mentioned this earlier, like it could just, it's seen as such a privilege, but the only reason it's a privilege is because of the current healthcare paradigm. And, and if we could only just bring those, um, yeah, those alternative treatments to our most vulnerable population, then we would really shift things. But um, but I, I almost feel like, especially in this current, um, just current climate, it's, it's such a heated conversation that even talking about it, I think seen as, it, I mean, I wouldn't say like it's seen as racist, but just seen as, um, you know, not, you know, I don't know the word like caring or whatever, but I think it's conversations like this that really are eye opening and important for people to see. You know, I'm, I mentioned I'm Iranian. So my family immigrated here from Iran. So Iran is one of the places that was hit hard with COVID. And that makes sense that these oil refineries are there. And, and so um, it makes so much sense with the toxins and PM 2.5 with them being hit hard there. And, and it reminds me, and I wanted to kind of talk about the microbiome anyways, with you, of course, that I, when I was going around the farm, um, we were talking about just the soil health and the 
soil health in the Middle East, um, especially, and how how it was just like the way that it's been managed there, and the way that that reflects just the people. And um, and I I feel like I can speak about this because especially it's my family, and they come from um, a time of war and um, a lot of unrest in that in their country. And I really recognize like the the association of like the microbiome and um, and that with the just the mindset of the people and the emotions and and I thought that was such an interesting way um, to talk about it. So I'm curious what you think and if you've ever thought about that or the difference between the gut health in these regions. Uh, yeah, the you know you're spot on. You know the human immune system begins at the gut. Some seventy to eighty percent of the immune system by volume sits you know right behind the the microscopic you know boundary of of the gut lining, and so that immune system is you know responsible for making some eighty percent of the antibodies to uh, our environment and environmental threats. And so we don't think of the gut as, you know, our immune system, but in fact, it is, you know, the vast majority of it. And so when you start to talk about gut health, you're really talking about immune health. And so when you start infiltrating a food system with poor soil management and, uh, and sources of food that are grown in those poor nutrient uh, soils, you're, you're really talking about creating nutritional vulnerability. And I think this has happened throughout history. We have long cycles of malnutrition and starvation throughout the 200,000 years of human history. And it hasn't ended, you know, we just had one of the largest famines in the last 100 years just happened in, in East Africa, and it hardly even got news, like everybody's so busy talking about, you know, the pandemic and all that, we weren't realizing that, you know, we have millions of people literally starving skeletons in Africa. We have so much food to distribute, we have so much corruption to keep that kind of horrific humanitarian crisis hidden. Uh, and so uh, we've we've got a lot of work to do to understand that gut health begins with soil health, begins with regenerative food systems that are not vulnerable to drought and you know uh, environmental changes in the same way that chemical farming makes us vulnerable. And so uh, we really need to overcome this you know dependence on uh, macroeconomic food systems and really start to develop microeconomics to support the seventy percent of the farming industry that feeds the world, which is our peasants. You know, 70% of the world is fed by a peasant farmer today. And those peasant farmers are failing in their farms faster than any time in history. Suicide rates in farmers globally is going through the roof. Uh, this week alone, we see these massive marches in India of farmers that are protesting the uh, encroachment of uh, the lawyers that are now suing those Indian farmers just as they did uh, sue the U.S. farmers for patent infringement because they let their GMO seeds blow over all of these fields. And, and so it's just this really toxic, you know, uh, industry takeover of the, these developing economies. And I'm so excited to see, you know, this mass, you know, protest happening from farmers. I had the, the privilege of being on a panel with, uh, with Dolores Huerta about a year ago. Dolores is one of the, the most successful, most decorated activists in the, the 20th century. She's been to the White House with every single administration since like Eisenhower. Wow. She was uh, Cesar Chavez's right-hand woman in starting the Chicano farmers movement back in the 50s and 60s. And 
she's now in her 80s and is so well-spoken, speaks so quickly and fast. She's so, so sharp. And she just, you know, blew, blew away anything I could present. She was so much better. She, she just is the <laughs> best activist on the planet still. And uh, so sitting on the floor next to her, her chair at the end of it, my wife and I sitting there, uh, she wanted to hear a little bit about our project with Farmer's Footprint and all that. And she put her, my, her hand on my shoulder and said something like, oh, I don't understand all of that complication and all that complicated <laughs> stuff you're doing. But let me tell you one thing is that I think you're going in the right direction because I've never seen a successful revolution that didn't start with the farmers. Wow. And so when I see thousands and tens of thousands of farmers marching in India, that's the beginning of a successful revolution. Uh, when we march around streets in the United States demanding to defund our police, that's not the beginning of a successful revolution. We need to literally start at the soil. We need to start the revolution with our farmers. Uh, we don't we don't win the game, you know, protesting vaccines. We win the game protesting uh, the you know abuses to minority farmers in the United States. And we uh, by protesting the abuse of and taking away of lands, uh, literally, you know, blatant taking away of lands from indigenous peoples all over the world to fuel, you know, private equity funds and big multinational corporations and all of this. And so we, we have to call a demand uh, to humanitarian, uh, you know, responsibility and humanitarian uh, sovereignty at these global levels to begin the, the revolution that we all want to see. That's so beautiful. I'm so happy to hear about that. I didn't see that. So I don't know where um, people can go to see them marching or um, if our media is covering it, but that sounds really promising. And, and I think that like the government in India, I know, are they like waking up to this as well? Like, are they listening to their people? No, I think that's why the marches are happening. You yeah. know, it's, they're not getting support from from their local government that is, you know, being, you know, it's worked so successfully for Bayer and Monsanto and all these companies for decades. Is it takes such a small amount of money in the pockets of these governors. You know, the, an example here on Hawaii, the governor who continues to approve, un, you know unregulated, unapproved, toxic spraying of chemicals in Kauai, which is is the garden isle like wow. the, the most beautiful island in the world is now ground zero for dow chemical bayer on uh, you know five of the biggest you know companies in the world are spraying test you know uh, chemicals that are the next generation of of you know macro toxicity these are unapproved not safe on you know and yet they're being sprayed 100 feet from public school fence lines and stuff like this. And kids yeah. are literally, you know, drop. If you want to see a deep dive on this, the film is called um, Poisoning Paradise. That's a, a film to watch to kind of get a sense of just the power of these chemical industries uh, wow. around this thing. And they they gave the local mayor there $7,000 in his campaign to do this. And so it's like seven grand, like 7,000 is what bought the poisoning of this island. And oh so when you look at India, it's that kind of economics for $700, for $7,000, they can buy, uh, you know, government officials to, you know, approve these things. And so the people are not getting supported by their local and, and regional governments in India right now. But I think this revolution, India has proved, proven that, that, you know, grassroots movements can change their, their, their democracy. And so I, I'm encouraged by the Indian, you know, democratic process as corrupt as it is that they actually have had revolutionary things passed mm -hmm. in the past. So I think if a farmer yeah. is going to happen, it could happen in India. 
Well, I I thought that they were like in some lawsuit with the Gates Foundation, but I you know I don't know. I, well, yeah, I they are actually, and they successfully actually banned um, the Gates Foundation vaccine trials from India a couple of years wow. ago because of the amount of paralysis that was happening in their children that was under these you know vaccine trials that uh, were you know it turns out had never been proven to be safe, and and all these uh, paralyzed children. You know, over 1,200, I think it was, uh, paralyzed children in a very short period of time, just a few months. And uh, and it was it turned out a vaccine that had already proven to cause meningitis and uh, paralysis in South America. And then they moved it to India. So, you know, it, it's just this corruption runs so, so deep. And uh, But India has been progressive in kicking out uh, the WHO and the Gates Foundation and all of that. And, uh, you know, I think... Agriculture is, is the last bastion of the chemical industries there that, that uh, India needs to step up and really claim sovereignty and, and, and protect their people against the, the chemical industry. Yeah. Where? Okay. So I'm curious because when I look up information on India or Gates Foundation and the lawsuit and stuff like that, like all of my, everything's so censored and it's so tough to find like a source that's, um, you know, really, uh, Speaking on this, so is there anywhere that you look in particular? Yeah, I mean, uh, BBC is covering the Indian uh, situation really well right now. So if you look up BBC uh, and and search for you know the farm, yeah, farm protests happening there, that you'll get some good coverage there. Al Jazeera is doing a pretty good job of covering some of this content. Um, so there's definitely some international you know contingents there. But uh, the Human Resiliency Fund, maybe the fund that you were referring to earlier, is something that I've just launched. And uh, we are partnering with one of the things that we're going to be funding is a group of independent uh, journalists uh, with a group called uh, the uh, Mongabay Foundation uh, and mongabay.org is their uh, website. I'll, I'll, I'll send you that. But, um, their, their group uh, funds independent journalists to do deep dives on humanitarian crises or whatever it is around the world to figure out what's really going on. So we're going to be funding up a dozen independent journalists through the Human Resiliency Fund to tell a deeper story on what's really happening in China, what's really happening in the vaccine industry, what's really happening around the, you know, the, this, the suppression of the 30 years of science to show us that the adaptive immune system and antibodies have absolutely nothing to do with the way in which we stay in balance with viruses. And so, you know, we, we're 30 years behind at least, and, and we're trusting 100-year-old science on this whole vaccine thing. And so uh, we'll be setting independent journalists off on that mission to tell the deeper stories around that. So uh, Human Resiliency Fund is going to be an exciting you know, narrative that's coming out of funding science labs, public resources. We'll be putting in growing and regenerative 12-month, you know, round the year growing systems into uh, urban food deserts that were hit hard by COVID in the United States. Uh, we're going to have a trial in a prison, uh, a uh, First Nations reservation, a school uh, school district, and so uh, we're going to put these regenerative food systems into these threatened and, and vulnerable populations. A nursing home will be one of the targets, and so uh, we'll put these growing systems in place to show the the immediate impact of of good so soil, good food on the innate immune system as the gut is restored, and uh, resilience in those communities to things like uh, you know the, the the influenza and coronavirus pandemics. So. Uh, we're very excited about that fund. It's got it's big enough, you know, uh, pool of dollars to really do some do some really big work and leveraging 
uh, NGOs and other multinational groups of money uh, to retarget their money towards more effective ways of telling the story of human immunity than vaccines. And I know that you mentioned your rate, is it you've already raised 100 million or you're looking to raise? We're raising 100 million. We just opened up fundraising just a week ago, and uh, we've already wow. got the the first uh, big commitments already on the way. So we're very excited to be moving towards that target uh, in 2021 uh, to do that. And so if anybody listening knows family offices or foundations that would be interested in uh, telling a, a global story on the human immune system that's up to date with the last 30 years of science around the microbiome, the virome, and the innate immune system, uh, if, if that sounds like an exciting thing for uh, that, uh, it'd be limited in general to high net in, individuals yeah. that are SEC you know, unified. So we actually aren't SEC certified to take small donations. So we have to have you know, net worths of, uh, of north of a million dollars in these family foundations, all that to justify uh, our, our legal uh, ability to take money. Um, but uh, it's philanthropic, so it's all tax-deductible uh, donations, and that can be important at the end of the year. So if there's people listening who, who are part of family foundations or funds that would be interested in supporting at the end of the year to help with your uh, tax-deductible uh, impact giving at the end of the year, we'd be happy to, to uh, entertain those discussions. There. And you're doing all this, and you are you're, you know, you're doing Ion Biome, you have M Clinic, and also, I mean, your kids are grown up, but how many kids do you have? Do you have two or? Yeah, just two kids right now. And they're, they're great. I've got, uh, my son is an engineer in Virginia and my daughter's uh, in performing arts and animal care. She, uh, during the day, she runs uh, a dog care uh, project in New York City. And then she started her own theater company called New York City Street Theater during COVID. And they're doing free, free, free street theater for people in the subway systems and you know, all of that around the city. And so check out nycstreettheater.com, uh, nycstreettheater.com. If you live in the city there, it's a pretty amazing showcase of uh, Broadway talent uh, happening right on the streets of New York to give some good news to New Yorkers and bring a little bit of the, the warmth of, of New York City back in, in a time where much of that has been stripped away from that city. I love, I looked into what she's up to and it looks so incredible. I've watched some of her videos and I like the way that they're doing it too. I mean, you can't even tell that they're wearing masks. It's like a shield that yeah. they have a microphone on and it's super cool. You can feel at least like, you know, when you look at them, it still feels like, pure human connection and it looks so wonderful and I was so curious like I think she mentioned maybe on her website somewhere did she mention is she homes was she homeschooled were your children homeschooled yeah they were homeschooled all the way through that's incredible and this is I mean before you got into like alternative care and stuff right I mean you were like a full-on allopathic doctor yeah, I mean, there was I was in transition during those years for sure, and yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, really, you know, anybody who's homeschooled for a long time finds out that the word homeschooling only really goes on for a couple of years in those earliest years, and then it turns into self schooling, right? And so, if you give kids enough space to discover their passions, they're going to self educate. And both my kids kind of identified their their passion areas of of engineering and performing arts. You know, by the time they were ten or twelve years old. And so we allowed them to really, you know, focus their attention towards their, their areas of interest and put them in a large homeschool co-op, which allowed them to have external teachers outside of the home in, in these uh, homeschool co-op environments. And then uh, 
Uh, we graduated them from homeschool, high school at 14 so they could go into the community college and uh, finish out some associate degrees uh, in that next three years. So they both finished their community college things at 17 and moved into uh, their their university programs at, at 17 from there with transferable credits. So um, I think, you know, to encourage everybody who's being forced to homeschool right now, um, think about, you know, re reinventing that into self-schooling for your kids and see if you can really nurture their passion points. Because if you do, it's truly unbelievable how, how self-directed learning is so effective. They don't forget what they've self-learned. Uh, they they uh, will build a very successful you know, pathway very early if you if you let them really fully pursue their things. And if your kid just does not like math, and that was my daughter, she couldn't stand it. She you know, swore she would never take another math class past fifth grade. And so we didn't force her to. And and she ended up in a performing arts program at the American Musical Drama Academy on Broadway that couldn't have cared less if she hadn't had math in 10 years. Like they didn't, I don't think any of her professors know how to do multiplication. I don't know. It's like they, it's, it is such an extreme creative environment. They couldn't care less. And so know that your child has a very, you know, uh, incredible arc of career. If you let them find their passions, if you force them into, you know, the, the paradigm of Western education, they're going to be on a very long journey to find them way through that to go find a passion on the other side of it. So let the passions drive on the front end would be my recommendation after seeing those kids do what they've done uh, is just like, just try to stay out of the way, create a safe bubble and try to create uh, creative resources and, and always challenge the, the habits of the week by expanding the horizon with travel or uh, with new environments, you know, trips to the, to the mountains is all it takes on a weekend. And don't forget to get them out in nature, just as my mom took the opportunity to, to build a lifestyle around our family that would keep us in touch with healthy foods and healthy environments. Uh, do that with your kids and your homeschooling efforts and you'll find great success. I love that. That's so inspiring, especially for now, whether it's people that are just doing it at home because of COVID or, or people that are just inspired to take their kids out of the, the system and, and start new traditions. So I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing with us a little bit more about you and, and what you're up to. Thank you so much, Dr. Zach. You're so welcome. Blessings on you, Nikki, and to your entire audience. And I hope that the rest of the, the 2020 treats you all very well as we prepare for a revolution of consciousness, at least in 2021. <laughs>